The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Athol Duncan. Athol was the head of BBC News in Scotland and led the coverage in some of the most notable moments in Scotland's recent history, including the Lockerbie bombing and the Dunblane massacre. We talk about his time at the BBC and the landscape of journalism in the modern age. We discuss his work as a leader and a coach across a large variety of industries. And we chat about his new book, Leaders in Lockdown, which examines the changes in global society and urges leaders to seize the opportunity to reshape the world for the better when we eventually emerge from the current global health crisis. Blethered is written, recorded and produced by me and me alone and has grown through word of mouth. So if you enjoy this episode, then feel free to share it because it's a great help. Cheers. So, Athel Duncan, born in Leith in 1964, it's been eventful between now and then for you. But we'll go back to the start. What was the what was the world like at that point, or what did it look like to you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't really looking very much when I was uh, way back there, but um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't like it is now. I never thought I would um, see a time in my life where I was practically locked in my house. Uh, for a year and uh, mm. where all the world's offices were closed and all the world's uh, shops were closed. So um, it looks pretty different now from what we ever imagined it'd be like, Sean. Something, I mean, something we'll touch on, being locked in your house has been somewhat fortuitous or profitable for you in the sense of writing your book, Leaders in Lockdown. We'll come to that later on. But I suppose I want to start at your career in, in journalism. So was the BBC your first port of call? That was 1984 that you started? No, I, I worked at the Sunday Post at DC Thompson um, first, right. and that was quite a good grounding, uh, um, a really interesting company to work for. Um, so I did that in Glasgow, um, and then I joined the BBC when I was 21, um, and I spent about two decades working on the BBC, mainly on the news side and uh, on the sports mm. side, um, and that was uh, great fun. Um, I kind of see my life as being in kind of three acts, Sean. And act one was that um, journalism uh, and executive at the BBC. Act two was when I went off to um, work um, trying to transform various businesses. And then act three, hopefully not my final act, is um, (laughs) where I am now. Um, Working and sitting on the board of a few companies and uh, working as an executive coach. I'm fascinated by the diversity of the companies that you're working on the board. I mean, you've got the Edinburgh International Film Festival, Scottish Salmon Producers Association, British Horse Racing Authority. There's obviously a huge amount of variation there. Is that something that you seek to do or do people come to you and ask you to, to get involved based on your track record? Well, the, the, there's a huge amount of um, variety there, but actually we're trying to often solve the same problems. So we're trying to transform uh, these organisations, these businesses. We're trying to make sure that they're financially sustainable. Um, we're trying to build the, the brand and the messages of the organisations and we're trying to make sure that um, 
they stay as relevant in the future as they have been uh, in the past. And um, quite often there's an element of uh, digital transformation in that. There's an element of working with um, government um, to seek government support in, in various ways. Um, so there's common strands, although they're quite different sectors, there's, there's very common strands, Sean. Mm. Right. That's quite interesting, the thing you said about turning them into digital organisations when you worked with ICAS, that's the Independent Chartered Accountants Society, is that, how you, is that what that stands yeah, for? Yeah, the, the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Scotland. Institute. So we're one, it's oh, one right, of Scotland's greatest exports, Sean, is the Chartered Accountants. And you were, you were responsible for, for going in and turning them into that digital organisation. Is that something that is very important to you in terms of modernising companies and, and bringing them up to speed? Yeah, so I suppose if you go way back at the BBC, I was involved um, at the outset in the creation of BBC News Online. Um, and uh, back in the day then, Sean, um, it was two people sitting in the corner of the newsroom and nobody would really speak to them. <laughs> and uh Nobody would un nobody understood that nobody thought this internet thing would take off. And I remember the um the presenters, particularly on the radio in the morning when they had to read out um the web address, um, they did it in a very sniffy and scoffing uh way, um saying H T T P uh colon <laughs> forward slash, forward slash, www dot, I don't know why I'm doing this, you know, ridiculous. So it was a, it was a good example of something that um, people turned their noses uh, up at, but um, look at us now. Mm, I know, changed times indeed. Uh, to go to go back to your, your time starting at the BBC, because I think that is the, the most fascinating for me, First day at work, obviously, was a quiet, quiet one. Piper Alpha disaster. Is that is that right? So that that was the first day that I was um, actually producing the the nightly news program, reporting Scotland, the six thirty news program. It was the first time I was going to be allowed to to do it, and um, it was the the day or the morning after um, the Piper Alpha rig um, exploded. So. It was uh, literally a baptism of fire in uh, in, in many ways, um, and there were kind of three major Scottish disasters that kind of marked a generation of uh, journalists, and that and those were um, Piper Alpha, Lockerbie, and then uh, Dunblane, um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know there were three huge stories where Scotland was at the the centre of um, world attention um, while these stories unravelled. And, and a thing like Lockerbie, you know, it still goes on today. The You know, the story has been ever-present um, ever mm -hmm. since, uh, you know, through the, the inquiries and uh, then the trial, um, the conviction, um, and then the, the subsequent uh, release um of the man who was convicted to return to Libya um, to die of cancer. Hmm. How how did that unfold the the Lockerbie bombing? Like from your perspective, because everybody's we kind of know the facts, or we know the facts of the events of what happened. How did that start to filter through to you? Well. I'll tell you exactly what happened. It was the night of um, the office newsroom Christmas party. 
and uh, we we were all in the um, in the conference room at the BBC, which was at Queen Margaret Drive. Then, just after seven o'clock, and somebody came in and said that um, a low flying aircraft had crashed into a petrol station um, at Lockerbie. That was the you know that's a good example of how the first story is often wrong. Um, so that was that was the first story that came out. So um, we jumped in a van with a camera crew and we headed off to Lockerbie and um, we got there pre- pretty early. I think we will be one of the first um, journalists to arrive in uh, Lockerbie. We went to what is Sherwood Crescent and there was just a big gaping hole um, where the wing of the plane had uh, come down and it exploded and basically turned uh, a number of houses in a quiet um, suburban uh, avenue um, into ash. Um, and we walked down over this um, this big black gaping hole and um, we stood on um, what was the main road south and uh, I realised that uh, actually the whole of the southbound carriageway um, of the motorway had actually uh, disappeared. We were actually not standing at the side of the road, but we were standing in the middle of the road. So, mm-hmm. yeah, quite uh, quite an interesting um, time for somebody who was, I think I was about 23 or 24 at the time. That's absolutely horrendous because, like, it's only something over the last few years that I've properly looked into. My understanding was a bomb went off. It was obviously a horrendous disaster people were killed and people on the ground were killed but I think I watched a documentary maybe two years ago and it was only then I started considering the more forensic specific details of uh, you know bodies hanging from trees and because you forget that all of these bodies have to go somewhere I mean were you confronted with any of those sorts of graphic realities at the time well every everyone was um you know there's i think there was 270 people on the plane and uh, the plane was blown into bits in the sky and it uh, it landed over a massive area um the cockpit mm. of the plane landed in a field beside a church away up the hill in the countryside um various sections of seating landed in people's uh, gardens in their houses in, in Lockerbie and of course this wing um, landed at Sherwood Crescent and the wing was full of fuel and uh, you know it caused a massive explosion when it when it landed on the mm. on the ground so it was it was um, pretty gruesome um, and the you know the bodies were being discovered for weeks um, spread out over a very wide area mm-hmm. Um and there were and there were people who were there were people who were you know sitting having their tea in their in their house in uh, in Lockerbie and um uh you know the bits of the plane fell and uh, obliterated their houses and uh, and sadly obliterated them yeah so it was uh, quite quite a story um, and still goes on till this day you know because we're not hmm. people are not convinced that um the right person was convicted uh, we we don't really know the the full story 
Do you do you have a particularly strong opinion? Because I remember at the time when it was Abdel Basset Al Megrahi, who the Libyan national, who was convicted and then he was released in compassionate grounds by then Justice Secretary Kenny McCaskill, and it drew a lot of criticism. I think Barack Obama personally weighed in and got involved. Do you think he was the the, the right man? I I, partic- I don't know any particular details of who else it could have been. I mean, I don't know. Um, the story is so complex, um, and you know, the trial um, took place in Holland on a neutral ground at a place called Camp Zeist um, in the Netherlands, um, and. You know, under Scots law, very unusual. You know that a trial would take place under Scots law um, in a mm. foreign country. Uh, the complexity of it and the conflicting stories, um, I could not put my hand on my heart and say that I back uh, one theory um, or another. I think it may be one of these things which is just never um, fully explained, which in a way mm. is um, tragic. Um, in itself because such a horrendous terrorist crime um, with so many people and so many young people dying and uh, you know so many people, innocent people on the ground uh, in Scotland and we'll never know who was actually responsible for it mm, I, f- I think um, I might be wrong but I feel like it was only just in the last two or three years that the, the families of the, the deceased were given any sort of financial compensation a recompense. I don't know if it was directly from Libya, but it's just insane to think that it's something that has has carried out or has gone for that length of time. Um, I suppose the other one, the one that you mentioned, the Dunblane shooting, of which it was the 25th anniversary just a few days ago. How did that one start to come through? Well, my my recollection of um, that one, my memory might fail me a little bit here, was um, we were sitting in the newsroom early one morning and news came through of an incident um, at the school in Dublin. Um, and I'm not sure if, I can't remember if we knew at the start whether a gun had been involved or not, but there was an incident. Um, so um, we dispatched um, who, the the guy who was our chief reporter at the time, who was a bloke called Alan Mackay, who actually lives, uh, still lives um, in Dunblane. Um, and he was he was dispatched. And when he got halfway up the road um, from Glasgow back to his home in Dunblane, um, I think more details of the story were starting to emerge. Um, but that was a pretty, a pretty grim day as well. And one thing that was very unusual about that was, I think, I can't remember the, the time span, but after about a week or 10 days, um, the media actually decided to um, practically withdraw from Dunblane um, and leave the families to have their funerals and to, and to grieve uh, on their own. That was quite an unusual thing uh, at the time. Um, in a way... You know, Lockerbie, Piper, Alpha, Dunblane, this is, might sound like a callous thing to say, but, you know, planes do get blown up, planes do crash and oil rigs do explode, but um, uh, crazed gunmen don't go into schools in Scotland and uh, shoot children. So <laughs> that mm, one was, yeah. um, in a way, probably the most difficult of these three tragedies um, for all of us working in the BBC at that time to cover. 
It's really hard to imagine being in any sort of close, uh, close perspective, I suppose, whether as being one of the families affected or having to report on it. Obviously, a lot of high emotion, um, a, a lot of anger. There was something that Boris Johnson said, and this kind of ties into something I'd like to come on to in the f- sort of later on in our conversation, but Boris Johnson wrote um, in the sort of immediate aftermath of that that um, gun restrictions were a case of something must be done-isms and a knee-jerk reactionary measure. As a, as a journalist, and it's your job to obviously remain impartial, I suppose you had left the BBC by the point that he became more prominent in politics, but do you think you would have struggled to... I don't know. I'm not doubting your professionalism for any minute, but do you think there would have been an internal struggle for you to to be impartial when it came to reporting things that he had said or done, you know, in the wake of a comment like that? Um, not really. Um, I mean, he has his opinion. Um, it doesn't sound like a, a great opinion to me, but it's not, as a journalist, that's not for me to say. Other people will articulate um, other views. And it's mm-hmm. your job as a, a journalist to ensure that all airs are, are viewed in the debate uh, takes place. Um, so no, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have a particular um, problem with that, and you you wouldn't be um, you wouldn't find it difficult to find people who would um, argue very articulately um, uh, against that view. Um, mm-hmm. On gun on gun control, um, you know there there was an inquiry, and there were there was new laws brought out on handguns in Scotland. We we don't have any culture of. Uh, guns here compared to certainly compared to America and uh, long may that um, long may that continue um, yeah, you know, I think the seemed... only the only other sorry for interrupting you the, I was going to say the only other um, mass shooting that's happened since was the one that took place in Cumbria but was that maybe like 2010 or 2011 so obviously yeah. something that, that yeah has been has, yeah, very I would say impossible <laughs> to argue against the benefits of that um, you said before, what makes you angry? Or you said, what makes me angry because my background in journalism is people who attack journalists. If you believe in democracy and journalism, you should be concerned about attacks on BBC journalists. How how damaging do you think that is to the sort of fabric of, of society when, when journalists are being attacked? Well, journalists journalists should be challenged. Absolutely, journalists should be challenged, and um, journalists make mistakes. And um, uh, you know, journalists have unconscious bias, like everyone else. But um, put put it this way: the BBC. If you go to countries where there's real oppression, the BBC is the envy of the world. The way that the BBC um, uh, covers. Um, in a factual manner and airs all voices and challenges all sides. Um, it, it's um, greatly respected around the world and many people wish that they have the BBC. Um, I, I think that generally the tone of public debate in the UK and elsewhere in the world um, and social media has played a huge role in this. The tone of public debate um, has... Um, it's disintegrated. It's uh, it's deteriorated, and um, very much um, over the last ten years, and we're all shouting at each other. 
mm-hmm. and nobody's really listening to each other. Um, and uh, that's a pretty poor place uh, to be. We're just become the shouty, shouty, divided people uh, on all sorts mm-hmm. of um, subjects, isn't it? Um, and I and I go. I have two two kind of opinions of Twitter. Sometimes go on Twitter. I find it quite a good source of news. Um, and then sometimes I I'm kind of dismayed um, by the divide between people and the people's inability to listen to the other side in any debate on Twitter. And then um, other times I go well. It's just a bunch of shouty, shouty people shouty, shouting at everyone else. And maybe maybe we're not, um, the the general populace is not paying too much attention um, to it. But the, definitely the, uh, the tone um, and the manner of public debate um, has deteriorated massively, um, I would say, in the last mm. decade. <clears throat> See, I, I agree with that. Um, and if, uh, sometimes I do find it quite funny, I think. One thing I would say, I think the common perception just now, of which I think there is some quite irrefutable evidence, is that there are certain correspondents who are conduits for Downing Street propaganda. I mean, there's people who were a direct line for Dominic Cummings, for example, to to just put out certain things. And I think to report a statement, and let's just say, to say Dominic Cummings said blah, 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 it's not your job, I think, to... You know, as a journalist, I don't think it's their role to say person X said this. I think it's your their role to say person X said this, but let's actually delve a wee bit deeper. Uh, however, I think there are then people who who consider the uh, the BBC to be a very left leaning anti government source of news. Or you said before, there are Tory MPs who who would like to obliterate it. Yet there are other people who say it's a it's the uh, it's number 10's propaganda machine so it's like well you can't both be right so maybe it's just a case of people people shouting at each other and, and failing to listen well I, I mean I haven't worked at the BBC for more than a decade so I'm pretty out of touch um, but when I was there I tended to think we were probably getting things right when everyone was complaining mm-hmm. you know and everyone I... did everyone did complain you know there, there was a um there was a queue of all parties, um, you know, and and these people would tell you privately if when you're having a pint with them in the pub that they were they were trying it on, um, but um, nobody in journalism should be complacent because they should they should listen to um, the challenges um, because the news agenda moves um, the unintended. Um, uh, the unintended. Um, so that's not the phrase that I'm looking for. Um, the the unconscious bias is the phrase that I'm looking for. The unconscious bias of people needs to be mm-hmm. um, challenged. I mean, that's what that's why you you need to have um, an increasingly and that a more diverse set of backgrounds for the people who are working in journalism. Because uh, if we all come from the same background, then we have generally have um, the same view, the same interests, and, and we don't reflect the views of uh, a wider group in society. So I think mm-hmm. we could probably do a heck of a lot more about diversity in the media workforce. Yeah, while while you're kind of touching on criticism there, something that, that you receive, well, I suppose the BBC received criticism for was the 
coverage of Scotland's, well, sorry, Glasgow's um, bid for the 2014 Commonwealth Games. So for anybody who's unaware, I think the the news cut to Kerry Nidisan and at that point the announcement had already been made and it caused a bit of consternation and a bit of anger. First of all, how how was that a high pressure situation for you and how do you deal with it if if it was? Well, it wasn't a particularly high pressure situation for me because <laughs> I wasn't uh, doing the coverage. But um, as someone who has done a whole lot of um, big live events for television over a long period of time, um, mm. I know that um, you can get it wrong, you know. <laughs> mm. And uh, on that day, uh, they they got it wrong. There were um, what what happens in these in these situations, Sean, is that. Um, People get too jumpy um, with their uh, live coverage and they jump about all over the place trying to squeeze lots of things in. And uh, mm. you really just want to say to them, just calm down and, uh, <laughs> you know, just sit on the place where you want to see the announcement. I mean, nothing ever happens on time in live broadcasting, whether it's the declaration of uh, an el- uh, of an election or it's uh, some famous person uh, arriving at their wedding. I, I remember also um, Madonna's wedding. Madonna's wedding was in. I'm going to say it was in Dingwall. I might get that wrong. It was a it was a castle that began with an S. Yeah, so she was probably at. But I can't remember what it was. She's probably at Skibo. That's what it was. And which is Andrew Carnegie's castle, and uh, I'm not sure uh, um, which. Um, church or and she got married in but uh, we all did the live here's Madonna we're going to see Madonna and of course Madonna was half an hour late um, so nothing ever hmm. runs to time um, but um, my advice to out of touch as I am but my advice to people doing live broadcasting is just calm down don't jump around all over the place or you'll miss the key moment and uh, that's what uh. happened that day but look um, nobody was dead were they it was a bit yeah, of a so. It was happen. a bit of a. It was a bit of a so what in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I did. I watched you. You. I, I don't know what the program was. It might have been Newsnight or something. You came on, and I was waiting to see what you were going to say. This is obviously just the other day that I watched this, and I was waiting to see how you would come out and deal with it. And you just said, "Your your exact words were hands up. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you apologised quite profusely." And I thought, ah, oh, there's something in that because I think I expected you to come out and say. Um, and this wasn't this me preempting you in any certainly, but I think just the default setting for people is to come out and go, oh well, there was a failure, this happened or that happened. I was quite impressed by just saying, oh well, like, like we're sorry, these things happen. It's quite difficult if you say that it's a cock up. People are embarrassed. They're hiding under their desks. If you say that, yeah. it's quite difficult for people to suggest some conspiracy or um, you know. Uh, what was it to say? When, when you're in a hole, don't keep digging. And uh, we, we we were in a hole on the back of that, so it's better just to put your hands up. You, uh, I, I, I believe, I might be wrong in, in my, my information here, but I believe you were sent to, not sent to, but you went to the Cranfield School of Management sort of through the BBC. And was that the same as Harvard as well, to sort of focus on, on leadership and management? So so there was a bit where I, I suppose I kind of stopped being... Um, as much involved in uh, the journalism um, and more involved in, um, you know, how we ran a very large organisation. 
Um, and, and it is a pretty big organization, you know, there's huge, huge budgets and there's a lot of people mm. and uh, there's a lot of change. And that was the start of the digital revolution um, when, you know, um, people no longer were um, gathering every night at tea time around the telly to catch mm. the day's news. Um, it was just the start of it appearing online and uh, then, uh, as we do today, just being able to look any second uh, on our mobile phones and get the video and get the stories. And um, so, so yeah, so um, really the BBC was um, helping me develop my skills as a, I suppose, as a business person um, to help them transform the organization. So that's why I was at Cranfield and then I was at Harvard. Um, but after mm-hmm. I'd done it for a while, I decided to go and transform some other people's organisations and leave the BUC to it. Was that then, so it was Glasgow businessman Doug Sawyers that introduced you, introduced you to the Black Isle group. Was that the next step for you? No, um, I, I went um, to work for Scottish Water as a director of Scottish Water for a while. And then I went to work for the Institute of Chartered Accountants um, for a while. And um, that was when I also um, got involved on the board of uh, British Horse Racing. Uh, And then Mm -hmm. Black Isle Group came around um, about a couple of years ago um, when I stopped doing a full-time executive role. um, And I trained myself up as an executive coach. And that brought me to really Act 3, my my world today, um, which is sitting on some boards of companies um, and working as an executive coach. And and that was when Doug and I, uh, he's a good Glasgow boy, when Doug and I got together um, to work in Black Isle Group. Mm -hmm. I was laughing at something you said about when you you joined Scottish Water. You were director of corporate affairs and you had to take some decisions and try and cut costs quite significantly. You said... They were the most hated company in Scotland until Fred Goodwin and RBS came along. Yeah, God bless RBS. And um, we went through <laughs> it. We went through a pretty torrid time. So I think you'd be talking about two thousand and three, uh, and Scottish mm-hmm. Water had not long been created then, and the Scottish Parliament obviously had not long been created, and uh, it was on the front page of a lot of tabloid newspapers um, for quite a while. Um, and, you know, that was the environment that the company was in. So, you know, people had to suck it up. Um, but they've proved now that, you know, um, the Scottish Water, I would say, is probably now one of the better run utility companies um, in the UK. And uh, the, the directors there and the employees there have created massive value from something which was, frankly, a bit of a basket case um, organisation. Uh, when it was created in in two thousand two, hmm. I mean, t- the uh, I'm quite interested to hear about as well working with the Black Isle Group, working with like Microsoft, Barclays, and all the the biggest companies in the world. When you're going in to sort of work with them or to advise with them, is it from a behavioural perspective, or is it sort of through a business, you know, procedural and management perspective? You know, what what exactly would you be doing there? Well, our, our focus really is um, behavioural change and leadership. Um, and, you know, all organisations, when they set off on a new course, um, they want to change the behaviours of their people. 
um, to deliver their new strategy, their new objectives. And what we do is um, we help um, deliver behavioral change and that then delivers better results because the people thing is the difficult thing. Every business you work with, you know, the strategy is quite easy. Um, you can pull that out and you can knock that together. But if you can't get the people to do it, and that's most people, most organizations can't get the people to do it. That's where the really hard work is. People, culture and values. And that's the, the tricky stuff. If you get it right, you have huge success. If you don't get it right, and most organizations don't get it right, you just plutter along, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a, a wealth of experience, even in this third act, as you've referred to it, and everything else. COVID comes along, and you you spent <laughs> was it about a hundred days writing leaders in lockdown. Yeah, I mean, so so what really happened is that all the organisations, the businesses that I was involved in, were all thrown into some kind of a crisis, and uh, you know it was a roughly a year ago today. So I chair the Scottish salmon industry and, uh, you know, we are the UK's largest food exporter. Um, And all of a sudden um, we couldn't export our salmon because the borders were closed, the markets were closed, the restaurants were closed. Um, In the Black Isle group, we saw a lot of clients cancelling or postponing um, leadership development as they focused um, on the crisis. Um, I'm audit chair in a cinema business and the curtain fell for the last time. The cinemas were empty and the curtain hasn't risen since. Um, And so it goes on. So um, I was um, in a bit of a state of shock. And I think I um, returned to my old world as a storyteller and I wanted to capture the moment because I do believe that it's um, probably be the defining months of the century. Um, and I think the world will change considerably because of what we've all been going through and what we're still going through. So we decided to do the Leaders in Lockdown project. And essentially, um, that was spending as much time as possible with some global business leaders to answer two questions. Um, how did they, co- they cope with the crisis? How did they led through the crisis and through mm. the most difficult of times. And the second question was, how is the world going to change because of what we've all been through? And that second question is the one that we're still trying to answer today. We're still trying to predict mm-hmm. it through our crystal ball. See, I think that certainly from a personal perspective, we are all undergoing this like seismic realignment of priorities or how we see the world. Like even we things like our relationships with people and how we spend our time and, you know, what we're kinda focused on, whether we realise it or not. And I know I'm asking you a very complex question, um, and I'm essentially asking you for a, a short answer, but what do you think the the fundamental changes will be from a collective standpoint, like, you know, both societally and I suppose from a, a business sense? I think every single long-held belief in business is now being called into question. Um, so how we live, how we work, what we're going to do about the climate, um, inequality, how we're going to tackle inequality, how we're going to achieve global cooperation, how we're going to reset our supply chains, um, what is effective leadership in business, um, because I don't think it was what a lot of people were doing in the past. 
I think we see the end of the Superman leader, and I think we see the beginning of a more empathetic, listening style of leadership. Um, resilience. How do we become more resilient in our businesses in a financial sense, in an operational sense, and in a personal sense? Because we've been coping with this crisis for um, a year now, and we're not nearly at the end of it, and a lot of people are very burnt out. And what will it mean for um, our city centres, for our business districts? What will it mean for travel? Um, will we reassess um, our approach to consumerism? Do we still need to buy all that stuff? Um, and what is it that we were put on this world to do? And what, what is work? I think all these huge existential questions um, are hanging out there. And, you know, we've got a choice of one path or the, the other. We can go running back to the world that we had, that we were destroying um, before COVID, um, or we can create a new world of business and we can reset society. And I'm voting for the second path. Mm -hmm. we'll, t we'll speak about some of those. So in the book, um, I highly recommend in which you basically interviewed, was it 28 interviews with business leaders from across the globe? Uh, among those, Brian Souter, founder of Stagecoach, Mark Thompson, editor of the New York Times. Um, and, and those seven themes, I've picked out some of the ones that I'm particularly interested in, or if I could just get your thoughts on them. Uh, and one thing I'd like to pick up on as well, what you said about city centres. In Glasgow, I've noticed like George Square has been partially cut off to traffic, and I would like to personally like to see more of a focus on like pedestrianisation or a focus on the people who live in the cities and to be able to enjoy them and enjoy those spaces as opposed to this perpetual like rampant commercialisation and always focusing on how can we make more money, how can we maximise profit in this area. I think cities would just become far more enjoyable and far more attractive um, if we would continue to focus on that. So that's something that I hope will will go on um, theme number two in the book was the new world of work you said we'll see a complete reinvention in the relationship between our employer uh, sorry between employer employee as uh, somebody who wants to see more power to the people and, and workers to seize back a bit more control is that kind of how you see that or do you think it would just be more the dynamic that will change well, it, it's it's everything that could change and a lot should change. Um, you know, pe people are, when they're confronted by their own mortality in the way that they have been in the last year, um, they do question what are we put on this earth to do. Um, and a lot of people of all ages, I think, are questioning what is work. Um, and when people have that, those questions ringing in their ears, um, I think businesses have to respond and they have to recreate um, what is work. And we're going to end up, for a lot of people, in some sort of hybrid um, working environment where they're much more flexible, probably working from home a bit more, they're coming into the office every now and again. What does that look like? They're in the virtual world. Um, we're Presenteeism, I would hope, is dead. Um, I think it's, it's, it's difficult for people to get their heads around this, but we need to be managing by results um, rather than by the time you sit at your desk and put your coat on at five o'clock. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the 
employees will want to work for businesses which are good businesses, um, which have a, a purpose which aligns with the employee. Um, and I think that um, consumers will now vote with their wallets in a way that they hmm. threatened to do in the past, but, but never quite did. And they will back the companies who are seen to be the good companies, who they like their purpose, um, and they they won't be buying from the companies that um, they don't like, and they won't be buying from the companies who they think are contributing to uh, the destruction of the planet. Hmm. The um, I, I worked for a for a software company back in in 2018, so I was based in Barcelona at the time, and they were in San Diego. Uh, and they were a completely and entirely remote working company. Uh, and they said at the time, and I remember like starting and you would get the whole presentation of the company and their sort of values and, and how they saw things. And, and I remember them saying that one day the, the entire world or for the, the majority of the world anyway would have the the option or the choice of whether they worked remotely, worked at home, or worked in a, an office space, but basically giving them control. They said, I think they said, um, we don't know what it'll take, we don't know how long, but the world will get there eventually. It is eerily prophetic because like <laughs> two years later, that's exact, yeah. that exactly what happened. And, and now I remember telling people and saying, I'm starting this new job and I can work from anywhere, so I'll be working from, I don't know whether it's a cafe or a rooftop or somewhere. And there was so many questions of, oh, that, that'll never work, that... That's companies won't go for that. And I remember thinking, because I absolutely loved it, and it made me work harder. The whole presenteeism thing was was sort of absent. It was just all about the the quality of the work that you put in. And, and on reflection now, it's made me realise that, and it, this is, I'm being hyperbolic here, but there is an element of sort of, I'll choose my words carefully because I don't want to diminish the plight of genuine slavery, but that's kind of what it felt like, like being chained to the desk, like we want your time and then your results are a sort of secondary thing. It's like you're here, I've worked in some horrendous companies where you would have to log off if you went to the toilet and they would take money off of you for the amount of time that you're in the toilet. Like if you're there longer than five minutes and now you looking back you're like I think maybe even in 10 years we'll look back and think how was that ever allowed to to actually happen so while obviously the destruction and the sadness and the, the loss and, and things will never be justified or they'll never be sort of softened when we look back I do think we'll get to a point and, and I think we, we will be able to agree that there have been a lot of benefits that, that were a long time coming for, for people's sort of everyday lives, whether in their personal lives or or professionally. And I suppose the two of them are inextricably linked anyway. Um, so it's, yeah, I think, you're, I think you're completely right in saying that these are the defining moments of the next century. You know, and, and my sort of evangelism is working with leaders and saying to leaders, don't let the moment pass. Because the millions of people, the many millions of people who've been infected with this virus and uh, the millions of people who've died of it, um, you owe it to them to change the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, we should not be going back to where we were before. We shouldn't be going back to where we were before in business and we should certainly shouldn't be going back to where we, we were in uh, wider society. But, but my worry is, especially when you talk about... Um, 
inequality is that so much of the virus will widen inequality. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we're staring into a black hole of unemployment. Um, we know that that unemployment um, hits hardest for female workers, um, for younger workers, um, for youngers from uh, black and uh, Latino people. Um, we know that what will happen with uh, the economical the, the economic impact of it will disadvantage the poorer countries uh, and will increase the divide between the poorer countries and the richer countries. Um, we mm -hmm. see that the, the vaccine, um, I think 90% of the vaccine vaccines that have been delivered have been delivered in 10 countries. 130 countries have not had one jab of the vaccine yet. So, mm. um, you know... That's not good. When Trump and Prince Charles got COVID, um, some people rather glibly said that, um, you know, it proves that... Um, no one it impacts on everyone. It's a great leveler, whatever the language was that they used. COVID isn't a great lever. Uh, COVID has, uh, has shone a light on how unequal society is. Um, and I'm afraid mm. that um, society is going to become more and more unequal um, as a result of it. Yeah, completely agree with that, with that. People saying that it affects everybody differently. Well, I do believe that they've all been vaccinated and there's others that haven't, even in those countries. Um, that, sorry, what were you going to say? Were you going to say I was going to say there's great stuff in the New York Times the other day where they'd taken a lot of data. I'm fascinated by data journalism. And, you know, this is quite interesting when we talked about all the people shouting down the, the whole of uh, Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. data, data journalism reveals a lot because it's it's evidenced, you know? Yeah. Um, and the this piece of data journalism in the New York Times took about 20 different measures and it showed how um, the richest 25% um, had lived against these measures uh, during the crisis and it showed how the, the poorest 25% had lived and it painted a picture of entirely different experiences um, of COVID. You know, the rich people, mm -hmm. the richer people having a relatively pleasant experience and um, the poorer people uh, being hurt, being infected, mm -hmm. being disadvantaged, um, losing their jobs, um, be more likely to be infected because they're living in houses of multiple occupancy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I mm -hmm. thought it was a really graphic description of there's been there's been two worlds here, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with that. And also I think it theme three and theme number four tie in very well with each other. So for theme three, the tackling of inequality and how it's, you know, shining a light on you know, even people here who maybe hadn't realised the um, precariousness of their own financial situation in terms of, you know, being one paycheck away from a disaster or, you know, unexpected expense multiplied by unexpected um, reduction in income. But theme number four was global cooperation. So you, you've spoken about countries wrestling and fighting over PPE and vaccine supplies and then the realisation that, you know, we are all in this together. You know, if one country is unvaccinated, it's going to pose a real risk to, to everywhere else. Do you think we will see 
see a, more of a global cooperation in terms of countries realising that we all have to pull each other up? Well, there's no great sign of it, is there? If you look at what's yeah, going yeah. on at the moment in the last few days um, over the um, European politicians' attitudes towards the AstraZeneca vaccine. So this was a moment where we needed our politicians to pull together for the greater good of um, humankind. And they did the exact opposite. They yeah. looked inwards to their countries, they looked inwards to their short-term political gain um, and they sought to cause division at a moment where we wanted to unify uh, across borders um, to save people's lives. And uh, it was a, it's a big fail, I think, from uh, um, many, many politicians right across the world. And that's not just you- America fighting with uh, China. It's uh, sadly, the majority of politicians um, have not been up to the task. They've been unable to raise their sights from their short-term political gain. Um, Hmm. And, uh, you know, so what you see is you see large corporations um, and... And I do actually believe if you want to change uh, uh, the way, if you want to hit climate change and vehicles, then you probably are better um, working with the big vehicle manufacturers than working with the governments. If you want to change the the food supply, you're better working with the big um, uh, food suppliers. Um, There's probably more power and hopefully more of a collective global purpose there than, than there are, sadly. Um, and you know, Trump. Trump was of that moment, wasn't he? But you know, Amer- America first, mm-hmm. and to heck with the rest of you was was where he started, yeah. and a lot of other people um, mirrored that in their own ways. Sometimes um, uh, in their actions and not in their words, but um, it, I find it a pretty um, dispiriting. Um, performance from the world's um, politicians with a few exceptions Yeah I was going to say with a few sort of individual exceptions do you think politicians by collective definition are just careerists then because I think if you were a politician in the true I don't want to say the true sense of the word but in the true spirit of what you'd expect you would hope that they would be cooperative um, you know, working for the greater good, but it seems now they're just working for, for whoever is um, is able to to line their pockets or line their parties coffers. That's how it well, seems to I me. I don't know about lining their pockets, but um, I certainly think that um, there's over the last couple of decades there has been uh, a massive increase in short-term thinking from politicians. I mean, we have so many elections uh, in the UK, don't we, between Westminster elections, Scottish elections, council elections, European elections, um, that you've quite often got um, politicians not willing to uh, make any long-term decisions, but only wanting to make decisions that impact on uh, this week's newspaper headlines and on the vote Mm. that they can get out uh, in six months' time. Now that doesn't work for if you if you look at the situation that social care is in, 
social care needs long-term fixing and a, and a lot of money. And there are hard, hard choices to be made in social care. And we've ended up where we are in our care homes because previous governments um, haven't tackled the issue. I mean, that issue has been coming down the line for 20 years. You can say the mm. same about um, climate change. Maybe we're getting our act together on um, climate change now. Um, but short-term thinking um, has not added to solving these problems. It's made these, these problems uh, worse. Yeah, I think in, ter in terms of my comment about lining their pockets, I suppose that was a, an umbrella term for yeah, ensuring that they're, they're still in power, as you say, when that next six-month election is coming. Although, I mean, I suppose there, there will be various examples, even with the sort of PPE contract scandal, I think... Um, that's just. I think that's been a case of daylight robbery of the track and trace system. World beating, cost more. You know they put more money into that than NASA put into sending a, an explorer to Mars to bring back rocket dust. I mean, you look at it from that perspective. It's just, <laughs> it is, uh, you know, it's it's absurd. I feel like, um, you know, it just it's it's just the ultimate, the, the most elaborate yet the simplest piss take that there's ever been because you, you read these things in the news and you're completely desensitised you go oh well that's another well, that, another daylight robbery that's taking place I'm not hugely informed around the track and trace system but is it actually doing any good at the moment is MD using the track and trace system is it I, I've, I have a very low um, awareness of what I'm getting for my £23 billion pounds or whatever it is yeah no I don't think um I don't think it has. I think it's an absolute shambles. I Matt Hancock was tweeted. Matt Hancock went on to Twitter to say, can the people who are on this flight please get in touch? And you're like, Jesus Christ. Like, the health secretary is on Twitter asking, by the way, see if you're if you've on this flight, going to give me a shout, like drop me an email just so we can see where you are. So do, like, you, do you have hell. the app, Sean? Do you have the app? Yeah, I've got the Either Scottish the one. Because you've yeah. got a Scottish one and you've got an English one. Um, yeah, so see, I got the English one because I did one trip to London and when I went into um, a restaurant, um, I couldn't get in without um, having the app. But, of course, the yeah. app, I can't get it with a Scottish address, the English app. Right? So you just need to make up. So I had, to, yeah. I had to put it in an English address to put it in the place that I was staying in London. Um, anyway, that, that was quite early on, but... Um, Hey ho. Yeah, no, yeah, I had the same. I had to put my, my hotel address and then and then nothing happened. Although I, my my pal was in so my pal was in London and he caught it and it was very obvious to him that it's like a few days after coming back that he'd caught it because he was really, really ill. And uh, it was about maybe twelve or thirteen days after he'd been in the place where he thinks he caught it, that the English track and trace sent him a notification saying oh you may have recently been in a place that was in you know someone was there who was infected and it's like two weeks have passed like he was almost at the end of his journey so to speak yeah. of having it like sure. he, he was getting better and oh just a shambles but I, I hope that you know as we do come out of this time that the 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 good can outweigh the bad um, for us individually, personally, and also as a as a collective, even in our smaller communities and and the global community. But 
time will tell I suppose and for anybody who would be interested in, in reading that book so it's Leaders in Lockdown I assume available at, at all good um, outlets well uh, one of the uh, I'll tell, tell you the thing about this book Leaders in Lockdown um, when we decided to do it our biggest fear was that people would have forgotten about COVID when it was published <laughs> in the autumn of 2020 and would it be yeah. you know, could, could we get this out quickly enough for it still to be relevant, right? That was our that was our biggest yeah. fear. Um, it's on Amazon. Leaders in lockdown. Um, I would like to say it's in all good bookshops, but uh, most good bookshops are are closed. Um, a lot yeah. of business books um, sell very well at the airports, and uh, most airports are empty. Um, we are, we're being translated into Norwegian. So, wow. so we like that. So the the Norwegians are going to get their own version, and it launches um, in the states on March the thirtieth. Um, and there's quite a big push in the the states where the bookshops are are opening. Um, but in in a way now, um, it's nice to sell books. But for me, it's not about selling books. It's for me going around and persuading people not to let this moment pass. You know, we mm -hmm. need to reset business. We need to reset society. And we only do that through um, the actions and the courage of individual leaders. And the more individual leaders who are of that mindset and that will, the more change uh, that will actually deliver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very inspirational element to it. Um, and I think, yeah, talking about the reset as well, even of society and I think the, the the Great Reset is something that's sort of circulated as uh, you know a, a conspiracy and it's something that we should be really terrified of. It's the Bilderberger Group and they've been planning this for years and whatever. And I always think when I hear that, I'm like, society's hardly been great for the last 10 years. Like something needs to change. There has to be some sort of shift. So yeah, I think it's it's fantastic that you're able to to make make that contribution uh, again. So for anybody interested in in buying that book, I think you should. Um, I certainly will be, and um, yeah, it's uh, hopefully hopefully the, the start of of a change, a positive change. In terms of you personally, um, what what are you looking forward to most when it looks as if we are going to be opening up soon? I hope, I really really hope that there's. I think there's been an announcement while we've been speaking actually. Yeah, um, it flashed up on my phone. It didn't. It didn't sound like uh, it was going to change your life, Sean. I think you're allowed oh, right, to go okay. to the. I think you're allowed to go to a garden centre now. Oh, nice! Can I get a coffee anywhere? Can I sit in, or just it still have to be a takeaway? <laughs> sure. I'm not sure. That's, it's news, it's that's news just in. News just in, as we used to say at the yeah. BBC. What am I looking forward to most? Um, I quite like just going for a pint somewhere. You know, getting the getting the train into Edinburgh and going for a pint. I miss social contact. Um, Me too. You know, so just having a chat in the pub um, or going for a nice meal. Um, oh, sorry, I see that shops, bars and restaurants are to reopen towards the end of next month. Oh, so right. towards so the end of April. Just... So it sounds like that maybe I brought it forward a couple of weeks. So I'll, I'll get my pint. I can wait till then. Can wait. Yeah, I waited yeah, this I'm long. Like... I can wait till the end of April for a pint. I know, I know, I really can't wait. It's something I'm looking forward to as well. 
Uh, well, well, on that note, Arthur, thanks so much for, for being so generous for your time. I've really enjoyed this. A slightly different conversation to what I would normally have, and, and I hope people listening uh, have enjoyed it as well. I'm sure they have. Sean, thank you very much. I'll get a pint a with pleasure. you when we're allowed. Absolutely, I'll see you. I absolutely love Edinburgh, so I'll hold you to that one and we can talk about the future of business and also we'll just talk about the football or something. Yeah, I'm, a li- I'm uh, allowed to come and- to Glasgow as well, you know. I'm not... Oh, aye, aye. I will right, be. Tell you what... We'll, we'll do a return leg you come to Glasgow for one then I'll come through to Edinburgh and it's the best of both worlds perfect perfect Glasgow Magic. and Edinburgh the best of both worlds eh exactly <laughs> although Gla- Glas- Glasgow is the real capital Edinburgh is just a wee diddy one that we, just so we can get the tourists in because they love that castle but <laughs> Glasgow's where it's at uh, now and thank you for listening I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Blethered and we'll be back for another one soon cheers was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information go to thebiglight.com If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School All on The Big Light Scotland's Podcast Network. From the Big Light Studio.